This is TSC Now, a podcast by the Tuber Sclerosis Alliance. Hello, and welcome to the fifth episode of TSC Now. As always, I'm your host, Dan Klein. This month, we talked to Dr. John Bissler, director of the Tuber Sclerosis Center of Excellence located at Le Bonheur Children's Hospital, director of pediatric nephrology at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center, and the medical director of nephrology at St. Jude's Children's Hospital. We discussed the different kidney manifestations of TSC, the consensus guidelines for surveillance and treatment of kidney manifestations, and current research to discover new treatments for angiomyolipomas and renal cysts. This is an important topic because renal-related disease is the most common cause of tuber sclerosis complex-related deaths in adults. So it's critical that anyone with TSC kidney manifestations know the proper surveillance and treatment methods. Without further ado, here's Dr. Bissler. We're now joined by Dr. John Bissler, director of the Tuberous Sclerosis Center of Excellence located at Labonner Children's Hospital, director of pediatric nephrology at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center, and medical director of nephrology at St. Jude's Children's Hospital. Dr. Bissler, thank you for talking to me today. Oh, you're welcome. I've been looking forward to it. So I wanted to talk to you today about kidney manifestations in TSC. So what are some of the most common kidney manifestations? The most common manifestations include small growths in the kidney called angiomyolipomas. It's just a descriptive name, actually. Like chicken noodle soup is a description. Angio means blood vessels, myo means muscle, and lipoma means fat cells. The tumors can have any of these, uh, and they can also have a large fraction, have a solid component. The other most common manifestation are kidney cysts. And there's really about five distinct patterns of cystic disease that patients can have. Other manifestations in the kidney include reduction of kidney function and include high blood pressure and rarely tumors. So how do you distinguish between these cysts and the angiomyolipomas? The best way to distinguish what's going on in the kidney for patients is really using uh, magnetic resonance imaging or MRI. That's what was recommended in the 2012 international guidelines because, as I told you, angiomyolipomas can have a large portion of solid material and ultrasound will potentially miss that. So really the recommendation is to image the kidney once every one to three years because the disease can develop with time. So you screen using an MRI, and then you can distinguish easily a cyst from an angiomyolipoma using uh, this technology. And when should people with TSC start getting the MRI to check for kidney cysts and AMLs? Really, the population as a whole, they start with brain MRI to look for manifestations of TS, but also to screen for the subependymal giant celastrocytoma. And so we recommend pairing those two MRIs. They can be done on the same machine, and it doesn't take much more time 
So a long time ago, there used to be objection in radiology departments uh, for TS patients where you had to have two separate MRIs. But that was not particularly logical and certainly not helpful for the families. And so that objection has vanished uh, to most places around the world, really, uh, so that you can get an MRI uh, one-stop shopping and you can get both the abdomen, including the kidneys, and the brain down at the same time. So once every one to three years, depends. Mm -hmm. And what would you say to a healthcare provider who may not be as knowledgeable about TSC, who, you know, might insist that, you know, an MRI is not necessary or too expensive, or there are other scans you could do? How would you justify the MRI to that doctor? It's really, and that certainly does happen. And it exhibits a pretty significant lack of experience. If you only have seen, you know, a dozen patients, you may think you have seen all the manifestations, but I quit counting the number of patients when I had physically billed for 1,500. And when I travel internationally, I never count those. And in that experience, in 1,500 individual patients, in that experience, I've discovered that there's a fair portion of fat poor lesion uh, in the angiomonocoma. So the ultrasound, which works on uh, bouncing signal back, can detect the fat in an angiomonocoma very effectively. And it can detect the cysts very effectively. However, because it works on sound, the tissue in the tumors can actually be invisible to ultrasound. They will look like normal kidney tissue. And so doctors can miss significant problems by using ultrasound. So while some doctors may insist on using it, they're being blind to significant potential problems. What other symptoms should adults with TSC be monitoring to make sure that their kidneys are functioning healthily? Oh, I understand. Like, what can you do as a patient? What needs to happen? So suppose it's uh, year two and you're being imaged every three years. Well, every year you should have your blood pressure measured. You should have your kidney function checked. And I'll explain more about that in just a second. Uh, and you should have your urine looked at uh, to see, make sure that everything is, is all right. There's an interesting thing when you talk about doing a blood test for kidney function. You actually have to lose more than half of your kidney function before that number changes. Another way to look at it is we certainly know, I've heard about people donating a kidney for someone who has needs a transplant. And the reason somebody can do that is you have about twice as much kidney function as you need you know, for normal life. So you don't really see a change in the number until half the function is gone. Uh, and that's important because saying, well, they have normal kidney function doesn't mean the kidneys are normal. So you need to make sure that you check kidney function every year to make sure that you're not starting on a downward slope. And what sorts of treatments are available for adults who may have either AMLs or renal cysts? That's a wonderful question. And actually what I'll start with is sort of general things and then more specific things. General things, patients with angiomonopomas or cysts or both, even though their kidney function is normal, are classified as having chronic kidney disease stage one. And the reason we do that is not because it's necessarily a serious thing, but we do it to keep doctors from accidentally prescribing medications 
that could hurt the kidney function. Along that same line, making sure that you get regular exercise, do your best to maintain an appropriate body weight, make sure that your blood pressure is closer to the average for your child's age group or if you're an adult, for an adult. Uh, that's really important. You take good care of yourself and avoid the use, if at all possible, of drugs we call non-steroidal antiplanetary. Now, if you have an angiomyelopoma, just having an angiomyelopoma isn't enough to put the need treatment. It depends on a lot of things. Before we had medical treatments, we were concerned with angiomyelopomas more than four centimeters. And the reason for that was that they were more likely to have funny weak spots in blood vessels called aneurysms. Now, if you have an angiomyelopoma that's three centimeters from growing, as an adult, for example, the use of an mTOR inhibitor, serolimus or everolimus, also called a benefit, has significant potential not just to stop the growth, but shrink the tumor. Another interesting observation is in patients treated with mTOR they seem to not form aneurysms while on the emperor. So it's sort of a two-for-one. You can perhaps shrink the tumor, but you certainly will prevent aneurysms from forming and reduce the risk of them. Now, it turns out for the cystic disease, if the cysts are small, I have seen patients remodel when they're on an mTOR inhibitor for another reason, for example, let's say, go or an angiomyelopoma. And the small cysts can shrink or even go away. Bigger cysts can't do that because they've lost communication with the part of the kidney where the fluid could drain, so it's going to always be there. But uh, early treatment, the point that I'm making really is that early treatment can be very effective for cystic disease as well as for angiomyelopoma. And these mTOR inhibitors that shrink the AMLs, they end up being a, a drug that you are on for life because if you stop taking the mTOR inhibitor, the tumors will resume growing. Is that correct? It's correct that people say that, but it's not correct that the evidence shows that. Let me explain what I mean. The first publication we did uh, about this, it's true that the tumors can increase in size in some of the patients, they went all the way, all the way back to the baseline. But some patients also continue to have persistent shrinkage. So the reason I'm saying that is people say that once you're on it, you have to be on it forever, and that's not really true. Every patient is different. It's also true that you very rarely have a complete response where the tumor completely goes away. But on occasion, that also happens. Any medicine that you take, it's risk versus benefit. So it sort of depends on what your response is and what other manifestations you may be on. For example, if you're an adult woman with pretty significant lamb and you're on an mTOR inhibitor and your tumor shrinks and even goes away completely, you may still benefit from the drug because of the other disease aspect, lymphangiomyomatosis, the lamb which the drug could also help. It's true with potentially with seizures, too. The drug's been improved uh, for seizure control, or with TS, 
And so it would sort of depend on the whole patient, not just the kidney. Does that make sense? Am I making sense to you? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But I'm curious if there's any ongoing research on treatments to completely eliminate the tumors and also, you know, looking at that subset of patients that have the tumors go away as a result of taking mTOR inhibitors and what's different about them than other patients with TSC. There he is. Uh, even, even here in Memphis, we have research going on trying to understand more the other side. What is it about patients that don't respond? Mm-hmm. Is there a potentially concern about people who did respond? Will that response go away in the future? Really, the approval, you know, it's not even 10 years old, and angiomonopomas are slow growing. So it is still quite logical be concerned about drug resistance development. One of the annoying features is that really, when you use an mTOR inhibitor, it's not a targeted that kills the antimonopoma cell or the, or the cyst cell that's misbehaving. It just sort of re-regulates it and, and makes it behave itself. So you might ask, why does it shrink? And the answer is, well, there's two reasons. One is the cells in the tumor get smaller, and then a slower process is that the cells do slowly disappear. But I'm not sure it's a direct effect on the antimonopoma cell. It could be an effect on blood vessel cells. There's a lot of things that it could be. So, yes, there is a tremendous amount of research in many labs in the U.S. and across the globe trying to come up with treatments that would eliminate. So whether you would take out the treatment, for example, for a month, and all of the cells that were misbehaving would be gone, and you wouldn't have to require treatment again, as opposed to the slow process of an infection. You mentioned the trade-off and side effects of taking an mTOR inhibitor. What are some of the misconceptions around Affinitor from doctors that aren't familiar with TSC? I think one of the biggest ones is the concern for immunosuppression. And this comes from the simple fact that mTOR inhibitors are used in combination in transplant recipients. But unless you pay attention to that work or do that work, the transplant work, you might not know that actually by itself, an mTOR inhibitor is a pretty dismal immunosuppressant at the doses, levels that are tolerable and that we use in TS patients. And many studies really don't see an increased risk of infection in monotherapy using an mTOR inhibitor, as opposed to a transplant patient who may be on multiple drugs, uh, two, three, or even four uh, drugs to control their immune system so that they don't reject the organ. So the first misconception is the, the risk of immunosuppression is fairly low, but people talk a lot about it. And the second and I'm going to label it a potential misconception because I don't know how to put all this together. mTOR inhibitors as a class, people taking an mTOR inhibitor, can increase cholesterol. And we know from studies looking at the general population, meaning people not on an mTOR, that the increase in cholesterol is associated with an increased risk of heart disease, specifically from a disease process called atherosclerosis, sometimes in the old days called hardening of the arteries. Now, 
recent research looking at some mouse models of atherosclerosis. Mice that are deficient in proteins that help shuttle cholesterol around can develop very early atherosclerosis, and it makes it a useful model, for example, to look for new drugs for treatment for atherosclerosis. But mTOR inhibitors work wonderfully at reducing their atherosclerosis risk um, because the disease is complicated. Atherosclerosis is complicated. Part of atherosclerosis involves cells growing when they shouldn't, kind of like an angiomyelopoma. And if you control that growth that shouldn't be going on, then you reduce the disease. So the actual risk from the cholesterol in a TS patient, I don't actually know. Uh, and I don't know how we would understand that is uh, the use of an mTOR inhibitor as monotherapy in a population, what the actual cardiovascular risk is. That would be very difficult to, to, uh, to assess that. So I, I think the risk is probably lower than we think it is. And, and actually, how to approach it is difficult. But I have heard patients say that their doctors wanted them to stop the mTOR inhibitor because their cholesterol went up a little bit. I'm not sure that that's the right trade-off. So you would say in that instance that the benefit of the mTOR inhibitor outweighs the increase in cholesterol, depending on the circumstance. Exactly. So the risk versus benefit. And the question, the the, the problem is, what's the actual risk? I mean, in the general population, I have heard people, physicians say you have to treat 100 patients with a drug called a statin to prevent one cardiovascular event. Well, if you're preventing atherosclerosis, and again, we don't know this, I'm just telling you my confusion on the issue, but if it's true that patients on mTOR inhibitors have a reduced atherosclerosis risk, then maybe it's as effective, potentially, as using a statin. So, I, I, you know, the cholesterol is a marker. It's not the, the uh, heart attack. It's not caused by... Uh, like a clogged brain, like your vessel being clogged just by cholesterol. It's much more complicated. And so in thinking about these misconceptions, would you recommend that patients with kidney involvement specifically seek out a nephrologist or a urologist or you know an expert in TSC? How should they supplement their care along with their general practitioner? That's a really good question. I mean, urologists were used in the past because the approach often was surgical. Like before I really got started, uh, the approach was more surgical. Uh, Then we pushed toward using embolization, and we understood we could use a medicine to reduce the post-embolization syndrome. And now that's been replaced in my career using an mTOR inhibitor. So I think the urologist is lower on the list now than it used to be. I think a nephrologist is a really good choice. The problem is, is TS is complicated, and you don't want people that don't have a lot of experience, you know, or, you know, if they have five patients, they're still not really an expert in the disease process. They only know what they've seen. So I think having a combination, having a nephrologist is a really good idea and necessary. But I think having somebody that you see once a year who's an expert in TS, if, if you have kidney issues, if there's somebody who's an expert, if you can see that person once a year and help them, have them work with your 
nephrologist or your or your primary caregiver, a doctor, to manage your treatment. I think that would probably be the best advice. But basically, it's kind of a no-brainer. Get the most knowledgeable people you can to help you with the disease process because TS is rare. I mean, a common theme in talking to families is their frustration in talking to doctors where they realize they actually know more about the disease than the physician. So I'm suggesting to do the opposite. Find doctors that know more about the disease than you do to help take care of the kidneys. And in cases where perhaps a family can't reach a TSC clinic, what sorts of questions should either an adult with TSC or a parent of a child with TSC ask when seeking a doctor to manage their kidney-related issues? Yeah, so I, I would ask things like, What's the size of the, the lesions and are they growing? Have they, how many patients have they treated in the past? And would they be open to talking to other physicians who hey, may have more experience? In my experience, I've had physicians who take care of patients with TS in a small town. They're a nephrologist and they're a fabulous general adult nephrologist, but they haven't seen TS before. And they do a wonderful job taking care of the patient. And when they have questions, they've got my cell number and they call. So I, I would use that model. They don't have to call me, but if they aren't sure or there's questions, then there's ways to do that, either by phone call or telehealth and things like that. There's different ways to, uh, to make sure that everybody gets as much information to make the right decisions. You mentioned other doctors consulting with you. I know historically you've been very generous about giving out your phone number. How would you suggest that patients work with their doctor to coordinate with you to make sure it's the most efficient way for them to get that sort of consultation? And the, the most important thing, the, the first step, is to make sure that their doctor would be willing to do that. Mm -hmm. Everybody's different, and every physician is, is actually just a human and may be or may not be super comfortable with their skill level, in, you know, their, their ego. Uh, those that are very, very confident would say, yeah, it's not a problem. I'm happy to talk to anybody you want me to. It doesn't matter. And maybe people who are uh, maybe a little less secure might be a little insulted. And doctors can be arrogant just like anybody else. Turns out we're just human. So finding the person who is willing to talk to other people is sort of step one. And then the step two is finding out who you want them to talk to and finding a way to make that work. Usually it involves... I, for here, I'll give you an example of how, how we do it. Either the patient or the doctor reaches out and we set up a time for us to talk. I've even had doctors, we'll set up a, where we can have a face-to-face -face visit with the patient all at the same time. They'll do the first patient of the day and, and that works out just fine so that we can all talk in the same room and have the plan set in stone very quickly, one-stop shopping. But that can happen lots of places. I'm sure other people will be generous like this too. It's just a matter of finding the doctor that will work with somebody and then finding which one that you want them to work with. And I, I know that you are a big proponent of telemedicine. Can you talk a little bit about how you've used that to either provide support to other patients or to other professionals? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So when I part of actually what made me come to Memphis uh, was the ability to really develop a, a real telehealth presence. It's complicated, and the, and the laws keep changing and things like that. So it, it it's not for the faint of heart. You need a medical license in the states where your patients are, and I got many many state licenses now. But the the purpose is to help take care of patients who might not have somebody 
knowledgeable about TS kidney disease. They may have a fabulous neurologist, but in their state and in their center, there isn't a nephrologist. And sometimes people are too poor or unable to travel for a whole variety of reasons. So it's not fair that they don't get treatment. And so the telehealth's worked out really, really quite well. I can see the patient in their, you know, the truth most of the time is at the kitchen table where we can have a face-to-face visit. And doctors often will do this visit. It's often the first patient of the day because that's a time set in stone so that they know, okay, I'm going to do it at eight o'clock, for example, Eastern time, seven o'clock Central time. I'm going to do it then because I know that I'll be on time. Uh, Whereas sometimes patients, you know, if you're five patients in and one took a long time, you don't know exactly what time it's going to be. So it works well for everybody. And this works not just throughout the United States and different states, but I've certainly done it internationally as well. And it works very well. And so how would someone work to get in touch with you via telehealth? They would just uh, contact the TS Center. So, you know, call the 901-287-7337, ask for the TS Center of Excellence and call and explain that they're interested in that. There is some background work that they have to do. It's not just a phone call. For me to be helpful, I need to see the imaging. So they need to get the imaging and the records and send them to us. You can do this all electrically. It doesn't mean you have to pay money. We have the ability, they have the ability to upload the imaging directly to our system so that then I can review all the records and all the imaging. And so then when we have our visit, it works out really well. I can actually show the patient what I'm talking about. If they are concerned about a you know five centimeter angiomyopoma, I can show it to them. And where it is and what the risks and and different ways to approach that could be. And sometimes I do that, like I said, with the doctor, either the primary doctor or the local nephrologist that sees them. And that's really worked out well because then everyone sees it. The patient doesn't necessarily have to be in the doctor's office. I've had it done. uh, I think the biggest distance one was I had a physician and patient in Hong Kong and a family member that was in Brussels. And we did a visit like that. It worked out real well. So going back to something you said earlier, historically, embolization and surgery were the main treatments for kidney manifestations. Are there still circumstances where these types of treatments are needed? And what are the risks involved? The situations where surgery would be needed, sometimes the angiomyopomas in the kidney can grow and they will actually grow in the venous supply uh, through the renal vein and even in the vena cava. And that's very risky because the tumor is not that tough. Uh, and so a surgery would be required to remove that tumor extending into the blood vessel. That was what it would be necessary. It can be used if the tumors are on the very outside of the kidney and really don't involve the kidney, then surgery can have a role there, cryotherapy or, or thermal ablation. But embolization, for the large part, has replaced that. And embolization is used really when you can see aneurysms, these weak spots in blood vessels that sort of balloon out, get big enough to break. Those can put patients at significant risk for bleeding. So that's a situation, if you see that, that really an embolization probably is a better idea. And the risk with an embolization, the surgery, obviously, there's risks of surgery that are pretty obvious. Embolization isn't one thing. Many places do it many different ways. We standardized our approach and have done about 100 in exactly the same way. So, And we have wonderful success. 
But if you look in the literature, there's a real high recurrence uh, or failure rate. Uh, so it depends how do they do it. So one of the risks is failure. And then a very significant risk if they're unaware of the reaction after the embolization. Uh, you can be really sick for several weeks. It's called the post-embolization syndrome. The body's response to the tissue, when you cut off the blood supply, the tissue dies. And the body has a very vigorous reaction to that. This sounds silly to say out loud, but dead tissue shouldn't be inside the human body. Mm -hmm. And so it looks like an infection, very high fevers, horrible pain. And the immune reaction can be so robust. Sometimes patients can develop lung issues, called acute respiratory distress syndrome. Now, that all being said, there's a way to suppress all of that. Uh, and I published that, I think it was in 2002, and I, I can't remember the year exactly, where you use uh, glucocorticoids in a pretty good dose, like you would use to treat uh, transplant rejection, because that's exactly what my first case, my first embolization experienced this, and it looked exactly like uh, old-fashioned transplant rejection. So you probably noticed my hair is turning gray at a rather alarming velocity. I've been around a while, so... I knew transplants in the days when we didn't have nearly as good as any of agents. So I treated the next embolization that way with a glucocorticoid called prednisolone, uh, IV, and then a tapering dose of prednisone. And that really worked well. The patient didn't even have a fever, uh, and that's worked ever since. But if you don't have somebody that's aware of that, then there can be problems. And then embolization has the risk that you can, if you have somebody accidentally can embolize something they didn't want to and those sorts of things, but that's pretty rare. That's sort of the general thing. Surgery, the risks of bleeding and, and complications after the surgery, infections and things like this. And then embolization, sure, the biggest one is post-embolization syndrome. It's neglected. You don't know what you're doing. And then different ways people approach it and have it not work at all. That's one of the reasons that the international guidelines is to use an mTOR inhibitor first, is because the results of an mTOR inhibitor, are, on the whole, if you look through the literature, are better than for embolization or surgery. So we've, we've talked around the guidelines a little bit. I'm wondering if you could just tell me what the guidelines are for both monitoring and treating kidney manifestations. Just in sort of a summary form, for the initial patient, uh, the use of MRI to look for the tumors and lesions, to monitor blood pressure, and monitor kidney function by blood work, and look at urine, and make sure the kidney is functioning properly. And then if there's a, a large tumor, uh, three centimeters or larger and growing, use of an mTOR inhibitor as first line there. For monitoring patients, then the, the, you know, the kick is, is that the majority of adults, the tumors will continue to grow. And so lifelong screening is often important. In that case, it's, again, still the use of MRI to monitor the lesions every one to roughly three years is what's been recommended. Now, that's, those are guidelines. If something has uh, been stable for the last decade, then you can probably stretch that out a little bit. But I would caution not to never image or you know, wait a decade because I have seen things change. I am aware that I will see these things because I see sort of the sick patients. And so my patient population is a little biased for the sicker patients. But still, I think guidelines have a good point. 
to always kind of keep an eye so that you don't have let something get too far along. So again, for monitoring screening, it's the same deal, yearly blood pressure, kidney function analysis, and then imaging one to three years. Great. I think that's a great summary for people to have in their minds so that when they're seeing their doctor, they know that they're checking those boxes and making sure that their kidney functions healthily. I think it's a, yeah, it's a really good point because in the end, you know, it's easy to say we're responsible for our own health. The TS patients have an extra burden because they may not have a doctor that even has ever read the recommendations. So my final question is what research out there either related to kidney manifestations of TSC or just it and TSC in general really excites you right now. <laughs> so to save a curveball for you. Yeah, all right. So first, the easy answer is all of it. But some of the work that I'm most interested in right now has to do with how the TS mutant cell interacts or affects the cells around them. This will sound sort of funny, uh, maybe, but much of the kidney lesion the kidney lesions, the cysts, and even the angiomyelin pulmonary, there's lots of other cells that don't have the loss of heterozygosity in them. And yet they participate in this bad behavior. I'm putting a talk together uh, for a family-centered meeting, and I have a picture that I found on the internet, uh, and it's fabulous. It's a classroom of a bunch of students misbehaving. Uh, and the reason I have that picture is this is what happens. It happens in other cancers, but I think it happens in TSC as well. One student can instigate a bunch of students to misbehave badly. And I think that's what's happening. For example, if you remember the literature about the subependymal giant celastrocytoma, for a long time there was a great deal of confusion because, on the whole, if you took a SEGA that was removed, for example, for epilepsy surgery, and you isolated the DNA from the whole thing, and you looked, you found one good copy of the TS gene and one mutant one. You didn't see that loss of the functional gene. So why is it there? How did that happen? And there's evidence that there are some cells in the tuber that are mutant, and those mutant cells perhaps communicate somehow and tell these other cells to misbehave. And that's definitely, we showed earlier this year, that's true for cystic disease. Uh, and it, it's probably true for other aspects too, even lamb. So the, the work that I'm most excited about right now, today, is how do the mutant cells talk to the surrounding cells to convince them that doing something bad, form a tumor, destroy a lung, form a, a, a tuber in the brain, tumor in the brain, how does, how does that communication work? How do they talk to each other? And the reason it excites me first is it's really got to be something cool. And the second one is if we can understand that, what if we could just block that? So you wouldn't have to have any of the bad things happen. So I, I think right now that's what excites me. Now, if you talk to me in a few months, I maybe I'll, I'll change. But right now, that's really what's uh, got me on fire. Wow, that's really fascinating. And I'm sure it, it would be really cool to answer that question. I do agree. Dr. Bissler, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you so willingly and freely sharing your expertise and you know helping patients across the country who are dealing with kidney issues and TSC. I'm happy to help. Patients suffer a great deal. If I can do anything to help, I will. 
My thanks again to Dr. Bissler for sharing his expertise. If you want to learn more about the consensus guidelines, visit www.tsalliance.org consensus. That'll do it for this episode of TSC Now. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And also, you can help the podcast by giving us a rating. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you for listening to TSC Now. Our theme song is Take Charge by Young Presidents. You can find all our episodes at tsalliance.org slash tscnow. Thanks for listening.